kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Hi, everybody. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. Like always, we're here with my man, the producer, Carlo. And today we have somebody that I'm really excited to have on the show. Very famous comic that I really, really like. Joey Diaz, you might see him on Netflix. One of the most interesting guys in the world with one of the most interesting lives. And we're about to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. So you weren't even born in the United States. You were born no, in Cuba? No, I was born in Cuba. You know, I was there. I went there with uh, Shelly to Taylor about 20 years ago. We went to, uh, we went to, uh, uh, we wanted to go to Cuba, Was you weren't allowed to go there. So I, at that time, I was doing real good. I had my own jet and shit. So we flew into Jamaica, and then we flew into uh, uh, Cuba, uh, Valdado, Valdado. The, the sand was as white as Beautiful. paper. Beautiful. So when we get off there, so Shelly the Taylor, dear friend of mine, he was in the soup business. I used to call him Shelly the Taylor. So what happens is we get off the plane. Guys had fucking machine guns going on, right? And all I said, what the hell is this? So I didn't know what Shelly did. So I grabbed this bag by mistake. All of a sudden, I opened the baggage up. He had lingerie in there and shit. And I said like this, I'm looking at the guy. He put it in there for the girls, right? He thought it was in World War II. The guy's holding up because he's going, fagaloon, fagaloon. I said, no, he fagaloon. Make a long story short, he brought these things. Because over there, it was really bad. Cuban people are wonderful people, man. And I was right in the midst of We went to Havana. We went all over the place. And... Um, Poverty, you had the most beautiful woman who were doctors, lawyers, making nothing, and they're all hookers because they couldn't make it men's ends. But I really felt sorry for them. I kind of, I banged about 10 of them when I was over there. Uh, and I tell you what, beautiful. One time uh, we were on the beach and I saw this beautiful gal there. She brought me back to a hut. It was a hut. And a guy was mixing concrete outside. I was our old man. I didn't know. So she brings me inside the hut. They had a 55 gallon drum in half. She's washing my dick off. So the next thing is I, I look at, it. now she goes like this. Come on, come on, come on. And the guy's shoveling concrete out there. So as I was banging, I'm looking over my shoulder. I figured the old man's going to hit me with a freaking shovel, right? But Cuba was so nice. Carly, you see, you don't even know how international I am. Another one. So we go over to, uh, we go over to, what was that name of that family that was very rich who had the property over there? They had a golf course in there. And then when Fidel came in, they threw him out. What was it? Human family or? No, it was an American family. Very, very wealthy. Not the fucking Bacardi's. No, 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 another name, another name. And uh, Shelly and I, we went there, and they took over the place. So we're at the restaurant there, and I go to, I want to see the major day. I says, my name is so-and-so, and this is so We're the attorneys for these people uh, who own the place. We want our fucking restaurant back. The guy's there. Make a long story short, Shelly was so afraid because the people on the street were so poor. They were holding chickens out there, and when we went around Cuba... The people were so nice, and they were so oppressed with this scumbag Fidel Castro. He ruined such a great people. And, uh, you know, you you were born there, so I have a lot of respect for Cuban people. And they should have slit his throat a long time ago. And his brother Raul, they should have hung them from rafters. Because these people are good, smart, intelligent people in Cuba. 
Yeah. A lot of heart. A lot of heart. Good people. And the pre-revolutionary ones are fucking tough. Yeah. They're tough, man. I give them a lot of respect. But they went through so much, and now all of a sudden we now uh, we, we close it up again. The, the Trump closed it up again. But I feel sorry for the people over there. And, and uh, you know, it was just it was magnificent. We went to, uh, have you been back? No. So I went to San Juan, old San Juan, and there was a place. I love the pork, the Cuban pork with the rice and the beans. And we went to this place where Abbott and Costello used to stay in the place and eat there. And I'll never forget. It was great, great food. But people, that's what I think about is the people. Wonderful people in Cuba, and I relate to that. And I'll think of the name of that rich family while we're talking. So then you popped over and you moved over to East Harlem. 88th Street, 205 West 88th Street. I went to PS 166. That's Yorkville. Right there, right there, man, right there, off Upper of Broadway. West Side. Upper West Side. Oh, West Side. I'm thinking, yeah. about, I'm thinking about East uh, Yorkville on the East Side. See, it's all, uh, that's all the fucking liberals over there. How'd you- this was 1967. Really? It was still, you know, a knock around people. Oh, they were good people. Now it's PAL all, was on the corner. It's all now penis licking liberals. Right. <laughs> no, I, I tell them, I went there yesterday. I saw the Whole Foods on the corner. The whole That corner was very special on 88 because the guy from Dark Shadows at the time. Oh, I remember that guy. Owned that fucking photography place. Wow. So he would shoot Dark Shadows. Wow. And then go to the photography place, and we'd sit out there, not Barnabas Collins, but one of the uh, other fucking Barnabas guys. Barnabas Collins, you don't remember that. You don't know this shit. You know, this is when You ABC. don't remember Zachary either. Zachary. Zachary would do the horror movies late night. He was on WPX Channel 11, Zach, and he had gas pipe in the bag. In the bag. Remember oh gas pipe? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, come on. You're a little younger than me, but you remember these I remember things. a lot yeah. of this shit. Yeah, so you, how was it growing up over there? 205 West 88, I was still lost. My father had just died. My father died three weeks after we got here from Cuba. Yeah. So I was a little fucked up. And then uh, I played hooky and I got hit in the head with a lunchbox in Central Park. <laughs> and that brought me back a little bit. And then yeah. I had a godmother on 148 and Broadway. She owned those three buildings. Now, now your father and mother, what's their origin? Cuban. Both of them. Both of them. Straight up, Camaway and, and uh, Havana. Uh-huh. And they were here, er, they were bounced. Were they here pre, uh, pre-revolution? Pre-revolution, they were bounced back and forth. My mm-hmm. mother, when she was 14, went to a dance with her sister and lost the sister. And she went outside and the sister was getting raped. So she broke a bottle and killed the guy. Wow. So they snuck her over here. When she was 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. She went to the Bronx and she started running numbers with a Puerto Rican girl. And her and the Puerto Rican girl opened up their own bank. Yeah. And then my mother went back with the Puerto Rican girl's ID to Cuba, had me, had my sister, yeah, and then came back wow. with that alias. Wow. So she opened up a bar under that alias. We had a bar on 137th and uh, Audubon, Mm-mm. black neighborhood, 127th. 127 Autobahn. It was yeah, a numbers black, little yeah. joint. And then we had the bank on 118th and 3rd. He came over to my East By La Maqueta. La Maqueta. You know what that was? I love La Maqueta. What underneath do you know the, about the that? The train thing. There's all the stuff. Yeah, there. but what was uh, underneath the train things where they had the live chickens? Yeah. They had produce. They still have it. They still have it. Is it still going on I there? I heard it's still a little small. Smaller yeah, venue. Yeah, because you used to go all alone there for 116th Street. 
all the way uh, uh, all the way down 103rd Street, too, I think. Went far. We had the numbers in the Bronx on Tremont Avenue, mm-hmm. for dry cleaners, quality cleaners. Yeah. And then she sold everything, and we just kept the bar in Union City, mm-hmm. which is the second biggest Cuban population in the country. It's where? Union City, right over the... Jersey. Uh, right over, right, Hoboken. Yeah. Union City is the second biggest Cuban population. Yeah. And uh, my father was the first Cuban committee man of Union City, and he died, and they covered it up and sent him back to fucking Cuba. How old were you when your dad died? Three. Three, and mom? Sixteen. Mom lived till you were sixteen. Sixteen. Right, and then who were you actually living with? Uh, I moved in with an Italian family from the neighborhood. The neighborhood. He's tall now? No, no, I'm in North Bergen, New Jersey now. Over in Jersey now. So I'm in North Bergen, Hudson County, next to Union City. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, it was 1973. I was the first pick in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, and did you hear what he said? <laughs> first spick in the neighborhood. You can't kid, use that word anymore. Fuck them. <laughs> the kids, uh, you know, uh, it was weird. My mom passed, and I had a couple of Italian families that reached out. And this one particular, I was like a draft choice. You seem mm-hmm. like you're very fucking Italian. Yes. If so. if you didn't tell me you were Cuban. I would think that you uh, were Italian. Yes, so they took me in. You have your in. mannerisms, your spokitation is not spikitation. No. It's more Italianization. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And then right? they took me in, and, uh, you know, man, I just, uh, I was lost. I was raised Catholic, very Catholic. Yeah. Santeria, very Santeria. You know Santeria is? Very That's Catholic. when you fuck over somebody, they put it, take some of your hair and they put a dead chicken. I had to go up. to a lady once because I thought I had a spell. She blew a cigar on a coconut and then told me to go break it against a wall. And then I felt better after that. You did? Yeah. I had to wear white for a week. She cleaned you up. She cleaned me up. Yeah. I might have to go back. I, I think people I think put you, the maluk on me. Yeah, because you're hanging out with me. And it, <laughs> since you've been hanging out, he's, he wants to open a pizza place with me. Good. Yeah. You need that. But yeah. what, you were a cop. I was a detective and a cop, and I worked all over the city, but mostly I was a long time. East Harlem was one of the original decoys where I used to get mugged. I was mugged 500 times. I was stabbed, shot at. I was hospitalized third time, fractured skull. I was in during the 70s and half of the 80s when the shit was hitting the fan. We had like 2,000 murders and all that. And, uh, you know, up there in East Harlem, we had the gangs up there, the Savage Skulls, the Seven Immortals. These little scumbags used to extort the money from the store owners there. So my partner, Tom Collin, a big Irishman. So we used to go after these gang members, and I used to wait in the back of the bodega or in the back of the uh, they used to have furniture stores, Long 116th Street. I'd wait for these little scumbags to come in there, and I would come there looking for the shake them down. I'd come out there. They didn't know who the fuck I was. And I used to beat the living shit out of him, leave him on the floor. And I didn't lock him up. And I told him the one guy was a guy named Blackwell. And he was the president of one of the gangs. I'll never forget. I took him out of his, well, he was, he got married. They were all wearing these Kelly Green tuxedos. So I asked him where the hell they were. So they were outside. I knew he was going to come out and do coke. He was out there blowing. So I had my partner. He goes, well, what, what are we doing here? I'm locking his ass up. I had a 61. That's a complaint reporter. He raped a 12-year-old girl. I could have locked him up anytime. So I had to complain. I said, he's going down. He says, Bo, you're taking him on his wedding? I said, we're taking him on his way. I grabbed the motherfucker. I grabbed him. We shoot back to the 2-5 precinct. All of a sudden, the riot begins. All those people 
150 people come out with tuxedos that throw bottles at the precinct. It was a riot situation. My captain said, Dale, get in here. He goes, what'd you do? I said, lock this guy up, man. And he's standing there. He had a top hat. He was about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I put the top hat on him. <laughs> So he's in front of the station house, in front of the desk with his handcuffs on. Everybody's walking around, bursting out laughing. I locked that mother up on. I said to the captain, I says, Captain, I said, he raped a 12-year-old girl. I was 61. Could complain of it on his wedding deedle? I said, well, well, you know, did he, let, did he tell the girl while he was raped what, what day it was? And, you know, that was the deal. I went to the nun that got raped in East Harlem. They carved 27 courses of the convent. My partner and I got those two scumbags. I broke one of the guy's jaws. They sued me for $40 million. <clears throat> I had a great career. You know what? I never killed nobody. Never killed anybody. I used to hang guys off roofs, put guys in the heads in the toilet bowls that hadn't been flushed in two years. This shit used to go up to my arm. <laughs> but, you know, it was a way of interrogation. It was a different era, different time. What happened to the police uh, today, in this country? They have, take, they have been stripped of their ball bags. And you, know, you have a lot of females on there. And what's happening now is they have to wear cameras. Everything they do is on camera. They got people judging them, whatever they're doing. And because of a couple of questionable shootings, they're in a bad shape right now. The police don't want to get involved because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. And we see it every day. It's horrific. Like this thing that happened with this guy Gardner in, in Staten Island. Terrible tragedy. The guy died. The guy was about 450 pounds, six foot two. The black dude. Yeah, the cop. Yeah, well, he didn't choke him. He got him in a headlock. I did, I did that dozens of times. Nobody died. If he was choked to death, he couldn't be on the ground and say, I can't breathe. If you can't breathe means you're still talking. You didn't get choked to death. You choke someone to death, you kill him. It came out that he had acute heart problems, asthma. It's a terrible tragedy. But to say that cop killed him, that's bullshit. And I've been saying it long. Now they came out with the evidence from the medical examiner that he was never choked to death. He died of acute heart problem. And when you have asthma, you, you, you close up. If you don't get oxygen or you don't get it, that inhaler, you could go into cardiac arrest. His daughter was 27 who died of a heart attack. He had heart problems in the family. So if he did two push-ups, he could have died. To blame the cop, and they all go against him. The job didn't stay behind him. And that, that's just a terrible tragedy that occurred there. Well, oh, but know? there was a... It was a Okay, I grew up on 88th Street. Yeah. You had what was called the beat cop. Yeah. That beat cop grew up in that neighborhood. And knew the people. And they trained him, and he got put back in his neighborhood. Right. So you knew Bodito was going to walk by every yeah. hour in a and fucking And he knew half. the bad guys, the good guys. Bodito, if Bodito caught me doing something, he'd smack me. He'd either say, the next time I'm taking you to your father, but there was no arrest, mm -hmm. there was no paperwork, and you learned... I got in trouble 20 times, Bo, and I yeah. can look you in the eye and tell you, I never had a problem with a cop. Never called in all my podcasts, any of my conversations, you never heard me say the word pig. They have a job, and I had a job. But because of, my, first of all, the cop, the people that took me in, the first Italians, yeah. the cops. Yeah. The guy that took me in was Carmine the Torch Balzano. He was a cop. <laughs> where where get the nickname the Torch? Because he would light things on fire for the town. <laughs> so we were growing up, and we'd ask him, you got a match? And he'd go, fuck yourself, you cocksucker. But he left me money when he died. I mean, really? because his younger son passed, and I fit right in. Wow. So I became one of them. Well, and respect was something you grew up with, and I did, too. I had a father from Germany and a mother from Sicily. So, I mean, when the only time I got taken home, I didn't get taken home. I was in the park. 
and my niece still suffer from it. I got hit with a nightstick by this Irish cop because we were sitting in the park after dark. That was all we were doing, nothing else. And I go home, my father says, what happened to you? Nothing. What happened to you? I said, well, this cop, that's all I had to that's say. Had to he say. beat the living that's shit out of me say. for the next hour. I learned one thing. I never tell my father if a cop hit me. And I tell you the truth, I had such respect for police officers, and today I do. Today and I it's do such still. a tough a job out there, what they face day in, day out. And look, we can see what's happened even in the last couple of days where people run into the, into the danger and not run away. And these cops put their lives on the line. And I love cops, and I always will. And everywhere I go in this country, I'm recognized. And, you know, for sticking up for the police officers there, you know, you got some bad ones there, but the bad ones are so minimal compared to the ones that really want to do the job. And now the checks and balances that are there, everything they do is judged the next day. You got to understand something, when you react real quick, you didn't have, I didn't have cell phone cameras when I was a cop. Who is that with that trouble? I had a guy fire at me from here to a little past uh, that wall over there five times with a revolver. He didn't have to shoot. He didn't squeeze. He pulled. And he misses me five times, and then he throws his gun down, and he goes, you got me. I said, got you. <laughs> I came out with my brass knuckles. I beat him into the ground, took him to the hospital. But, I mean, this was the way. I, I could have killed him. Could have shot him dead. I would have had another medal. I had all the medals in the world, but I never killed nobody. I could have killed 15 people. To me, I always depended on my physical strength. God made me very strong. I always did push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups. So I could fight any human being. I was not afraid of anybody either. I was never afraid of anybody. One person, my father. That's the only person I was afraid of in my whole life. But, uh, you know, it's a, it was a different, it was a different era. Now, so you grow up on the West Side, you go to New Jersey. What, how do you become a comic? How do I become a comic? I always had a way of making things better immediately in my mind. Yeah, no matter how the situation. When I found my mother dead, <clears throat> I went downstairs and she was already on the floor. Her arm was purple. She had a heart attack. <laughs> and I remember bending over. How old over, was she? 48. Oh, my God. And I know. remember bending over and saying to myself, fuck, she never, she's never going to find out I got left back. You said it to your mom. You said it to your mom. Yeah, I said it to myself, and I made myself laugh. But that wasn't it. I I got locked up. Yeah. I was 25 years old. I got caught, locked up the second. Uh, I ple I pleaded out the second degree burglary, but it was kidnapping. It was a drug rip. Yeah. And while I was in there, I was 20 something, and I had done How'd everything. How'd you wind up and get involved with that bullshit? Drugs. Drugs, uh, you know, it got deeper and coke deeper. Coke or heroin or what? Coke. Coke got, you know, uh, you're here. And I always tell people that we have to talk to the older people to tell them the history of Coke. Oh, yeah. We had on, you know, we had on this show, remarkable guy. What was his name? Freeway Rick Ross. He was one of the biggest. Uh, Tremendous. He told that story. Tremendous. And we had him on the show and very enlightened that whole thing with the Contras, with the, we were, they were supplying the money to the Contras through sale of, of cocaine. And we, here's a story. I'll tell you a true story. And he's going to look at me go, oh, but sideways. He learned so much through our podcast. Years ago in the 1970s, we used to go to a restaurant. And I'll never forget, I had this guy Genovese with me. And he came out with it looked like a sugar bowl. It was cocaine. I was a detective at the time. And they were doing cocaine around the table, snorting it like this. It wasn't categorized, I don't think, as a, as a level, as, as, as like a heroin. It was another level. It only in the middle 70s did it become that level. Because cocaine was, 
Years ago, they used to have coca leaves they used to suck on. And Coca-Cola actually had cocaine in yeah. it. The, the shit. So cocaine wasn't really, in the early 70s, wasn't looked upon as the bad drug at all. And it was, I used to go to Studio 54. We used to go to Adam's Apple on 61st. Everybody was doing cocaine. But then all of a sudden, they re, uh, the DEA re-regulated as a Class A felony, whatever the hell it is. And then coke was bad. But coke was always around. And then the people that got into coke in the beginning... Didn't realize now it's a, it's registered as a, as a real problem. So you got involved with Coke. 79. Okay. That was after it became the, it became criminal then. Yeah, go ahead. I also remember going to my aunt and my godmother's on 148th across the street. That whole strip from Broadway to Amsterdam was weed. They used to call it the master mix. And I still remember going there in June of 85, going to my godmother's, Mm -hmm. crossing the street to go get weed, and then going, we got no weed on this block no more. It's just straight up crack. Well, the eighty, the eighties, with the that was the other scumbag I locked up, the Palm Sunday Massacre. Ten dead. Oh my God! Remember that shit? I locked him up. I still remember. Ten dead. The guy's out now. The guy thinks. But here's the thing. I think it's the mayor of Baltimore. When they, when that first happened, they said that the family was involved with Colombian cocaine dealers. Twenty years later, they found out that it was the husband. No, no, it wasn't twenty years. I, I locked him up. What happened? His name was Christopher Thomas. He was the story with that. Hit me because when we first got the case. It was supposed to be Colombian hitmen and all that shit, right. right? Next thing is you had all these different leads. So it turns out to be Christopher Thomas that that I arrested, I was the arresting officer, was locked up for the, the murder of the 10 people. What it was was the father, Bermudez, was Puerto Rican. He was dealing drugs. So he was supplying this guy. So when Bermudez uh, supplied him, he now cut him off, told me you can't have him. He owed him $7,000. So then Christopher Thomas breaks in. He knows everybody knows him, so he has to systematically kill everybody. The only one to survive was a little girl who was 18 months old. She hid under the bed. And the way we had to do it with this guy is we had to give him full immunity to the father to admit that he was doing all this cocaine. And then we were able to find a round in the burnt out, uh, the burnt out apartment that coincided with the round that was found on 1080 Liberty Avenue in City Line. It was called City Line. That's where the murders occurred. And it took us about two, three months. I'll never forget in the beginning, I had this guy calling up the station house, meet me over there by uh, Prospect Park, go to this phone booth, go to that. So he had me going all over the, for a fucking week. He had us going crazy. Finally, we set him up. We lay for him. We grab him. He was a, a Puerto Rican guy. We bring him in the station house. So now I got my Lieutenant Herbie Holman, big, heavy set guy. And so this guy, well, you know all the information about who did the murder. Well, you know, I don't really, you know, no, no, you said you know what happened, you saw. Well, I just wanted to be part of this, like he wanted to inject himself into the largest mass murder. My lieutenant picked him up by his chin, broke him right through the plasterboard wall, boom, right through there. The guy actually was making up a story for a week, had us running around, running around. So it turns out to be that Christopher Thomas was the one that owed the $7,000. Christopher Thomas was the one that murdered the ten. People, including eight children under the age of 12, uh, the Palm Sunday Massacre. Do you remember the fucking spread in the Daily News? They sh- When you opened it up, they showed all the caskets. Well. It was fucking crazy. He'll tell you, in my office, I have the 8 by 10 pictures of all the kids shot in the head dead. 
I keep them. I have, I have a folder with them, and I'll never forget that. So I was off that day. I always called the station house. I was on a plan B. You know, the plan B is you're supposed to be somewhere where you ain't. You got it. Wink, right. wink. So I was on a plan B, and I used to call up just in case the old lady called, make sure, you know, I'm in the field. If, oh, we got two, three, four dead on Liberty Avenue. I said, get out of here. So I come rushing in on my day off. I walked into the house, and I saw this sight of these these kids all shot in the head. And I'll never forget. My lieutenant there said, Dito, what are you doing here? I was in a homicide team at that point. I said, Lieutenant, I have all my murders. All my cases are closed. I said, I want to catch the scumbags that did this. So I got assigned to it. Eventually, I was named as one of the arresting officers. I'm the actually walking this creep out on all the front pages, all the papers and newsreels. But it was something that we had to develop, you know, physical evidence, witnesses we found. It was a great case. I didn't break it single-handedly. We had 200 of the best detectives in New York. We worked in it team, different avenues, and to make a long story short, the first time I see him, my partner was Jimmy McCalvin, black guy, and we go up, when we first had him as a suspect, we go to the Grand Concourse up in the Bronx, and I'll never forget, so we go to the girlfriend's house, his girlfriend that we found out, she lived there, so what do we do? We're from Brooklyn, detectives, we're in the Bronx, this mass murder just occurred, so we bang on the door, the girlfriend, the girl's behind the door, the girlfriend, she comes to the door, yes, I said, the detectives from the 4-4, that was the 4-4 up the Bronx, but we weren't 7-5, for the 4-4, where's this Christopher Thomas, well, uh, he's not here. I says, you tell that scumbag, if he breaks into one more washing machine downstairs, I'm going to break his effing head. So we may believe we were investigating the, the change things in the washing machines down there to throw them off that we were from Brooklyn. So now we go out to the car. All of a sudden, this guy comes running out. I'll never forget his eyes were rolling around. And he looks at me and Jimmy. He goes, I'm Christopher Thomas. He goes, I, I didn't break into any washing machines. I said, you stay away. I said, because I'll kick your ass if you come back there. I don't want another report. We drove away. I go to, I go to uh, Jimmy McCalvin. That's our guy. That was the first time I had contact with him. Eventually, we developed Now, we're looking for him. When we finally got the right to arrest him. We got the witnesses. We got the physical evidence. Can't find him. He would, We had him under surveillance. He slipped the surveillance. Some guys were surveilling him, and we can't find him. Because what I was going to do is have Bermudez, the father, show up and meet him by the, uh, uh, by the uh, uh, Hunts Point Market. And I was going to lay in the back. I used to carry a double-barrel shotgun. And he used to break away. I had a slug and 12-gauge. I was going to lay in the back seat because I knew he was going to show up with a gun. And this is the first time in my life I was going to let him meet his master because I know he's come with a gun. I would have let him take it out, and I would have put this guy in half, and there wouldn't have been no trial. But we can't find him. So what happens? What happens? We're checking. He's in the Bronx House of Detention for raping and sodomizing his mother. This is what we were dealing with. This is the nut job we were dealing with. And this guy's out on the street and I had to kill him 10 people. He's out. The parole board in New York State let him out. He's out now. Can you, can you ascertain what these kids will never see Christmas. These kids will never see how to grow up. And this son of a bitch is out. And this is the parole board. What was his original sentence? It, what happened was the moron jury in Brooklyn, the moron jury in Brooklyn, we were, 
went through the whole trial. They came back with 10 counts of manslaughter because they said, because he was high on crack cocaine, he didn't know what he was doing. So if you want to kill somebody, take a couple of puffs of some coke, and then just tell him I was on cocaine, and you won't get be convicted of murder. That's right, exactly six, what they said. Manslaughter is 6 to 8, 6 to 10. But they, they did the concurrent. Oh, they did concurrent. Yeah, so in other words, he ended up, he ended, I locked him up in 84. He just got out a year and a half ago. Oh. He did some time. Yeah, but time for killing 10 people, 8 kids, time, he should have been fried. He should have been fried. I would have Or life sentenced. I would have flipped the switch. And usually when you do a violent crime, it's tough to get on the parole board. Like the parole mm. board will hold you for the whole fucking time. Yeah, but the, 90% of yeah, your but time. The, yeah, but the thing is this. Where was the lives of these kids? I mean, a mad dog like that, what do you do with a mad dog? You, you keep feeding them? He's going to bite you back. Let's go more in your... Forget about my stupid... No, career. I love all this cop stuff. This yeah, is my world. You want to know something? The, the thing is, more interesting is, you end up doing shows... Did you do stuff in Jersey before you ended up in L.A.? Never. Never even thought about it. I had did friends. Did you do anything in New York? Nothing. Because you know where I used to hang out and drink with this guy named Robin Williams? At the Catch a Rising Star? Yeah, with Rick, Rick Newman's joint. Rick Newman's I used to drink joint. in L.A. I, I was doing lines with him over the bar. And, and cocaine and back then. And, uh, yeah, you know what? I didn't like cocaine because when I was with a chick, you know, I didn't like cocaine. Cocaine was cool, but then when you got want to do the deed, got a little store for Tasha. You got to eat some ass and pussy. That dick <laughs> like a motherfucker. You got to get on your knees. You got to get on your hands and knees. So eat that you monkey that? and cappuccino. Is. <laughs> cappuccino. You know what cappuccino is? Yeah. That's the form that you get on the top, right? <laughs> Carly, you're learning things, Carl. No, but you do it this way. That's cappuccino. <laughs> yeah. And then that's tarantella when you rub it that way, like starting a fire, whatever the fuck. Carly, you're making But, uh, yeah, but how come you never did any clubs in New York? Because at that time, I was a fucking criminal. This is in the 70s, but No, no, the 70s, I was still a kid. Uh, mm. I left New York in 83. I owed a bunch of loan sharks money. <laughs> I owed my godfather money. I fucking and he was really gonna kill me. He was chasing me on a on a motorcycle. <laughs> and then uh, I had gone to Colorado and I really liked it. I came back. They didn't have pop back then. Oh yeah, they had everything back then. Yeah. It was tremendous. Aspen was tremendous. Yeah. And uh, I came back as a fucking moron. Why yeah. did you come back? Yeah. And I come back and cocaine is everywhere now. It's eighty four. Yep. And I ended up homeless, living in a fucking park in North Bergen on a rocket ship. Yeah. And then I went back to Colorado. Mm -hmm. You know, I vowed to clean up, and I didn't. And I ended up getting wanted in Boulder. I ended up in San Francisco. Then I ended up in uh, Aspen. And then I got in trouble in Aspen. I didn't get caught, so I left. The DEA was on me in Aspen. And I left and went back to Boulder. Just for the cocaine... Deal with the cocaine, and then I fucking uh, went back to How'd it. How'd you get Boulder. out of that? How to what? How'd you get it? Not getting locked up. They. What happened was I was selling coke to a guy, uh, and his wife was an accountant for the city of Aspen, and she got caught stealing. So part of her deal was to rat on drug dealers in the area. And Aspen is small. Everybody knows when the DEA comes in, they yeah. all stay at the Red Roof Inn. So the fucking people at the counter will you let everybody know. undercover stay at the Red Roof yeah, they watch them? They, they, they would stay there and watch them. Yeah. And at that time, there was a guy out there named Graybo. Yeah. That they blew up with a car bomb. Yeah. Uh, and, 
you know, just some, Aspen was fucking crazy. I came back here, got in trouble, went back to Colorado. At that time, I had done everything. I had even gotten, I quit high school when I got into college. I got into CU Boulder. You know these fucking idiots that put they paid a half a million yeah, for their kids? Yeah. All they had to do was give them a Spanish last name. <laughs> they That's all they had to do. Marry a Mexican and fucking go to school for free. <laughs> go to University of Montana. That's what I did. I went to Boulder where I had no Latinos. Remember the Boulder, Colorado football team? Yeah. They were always getting in trouble because they were black. Yeah. Minorities didn't want to go there. So I ended up in Boulder. No GED at the time. You didn't even have a GED. No high school diploma. I just signed up. I lied. Started taking classes. They started giving me Pell Grants and Baba Boomp and the wow. Henry Moreno Scholarship Fund. Then when I transferred, like I took continuing ed. When you I just transferred, said, look at I'm a poor speck from New York. Oh, you should have seen I need me. Cash. I was like a Japanese guy walking around <laughs> with a camera. Me no sabe. I didn't know nothing. I don't know Dick. I'm like just, the, the chubby chicken, man on fire. When he came together, no sé, es que no sé. I didn't know nothing. They kept giving me money. And in the meantime, I tried to. Uh, just some guy got to me. He said he had two kilos of coke, and he wanted to rob him from his roommate and sell him. And I ended up getting a machine gun and robbing him. And then the guy I robbed him with was the one that ratted me out. Oh, he gave you up. He flipped me. So you, so you did some real time. I did. Well, well, this is what happened. Robbery and gun. I, they offered me nine years, second-degree kidnapping. I, fired, I pulled the Harvey Weinstein. I fired the attorney. <laughs> I fired the... I always knew. I knew the... Listen, I grew up in the numbers game. It was so weird because in New Jersey, gambling is a felony, but in New York, it's a fucking ticket. So I grew up on 118th Street where the cops would call us and say, today's the day. Just have two or three grand there. <laughs> We'd hang up the phone. The cops would come, arrest my mother, give us a ticket, sup, take the money. Go down to the station, and then that night my mom would meet him at a bar on Broadway. Take care of him. That the bull, the tail would move, I forget the name of it, or they would meet at Harry, what was that Chinese place in the 80s that was tremendous? Henry Young. No, Jimmy. Jimmy, uh, with the fucking $36 egg roll. Uh, that's on, uh, no. Uh, it's closed now. It's yeah, way yeah, yeah on 56th Street, it was. Uh, Jimmy K. No, Jimmy K was the place where we did the cocaine in, that Jimmy K. But he said, uh, uh, hung. Uh, yes, Billy Hung. Billy Hung. Billy Hung. On 56th Street. I think Billy Hung hung himself, too. He died. Really? I don't know how he died. Maybe he hung himself. Bill Hung. <laughs> Billy they had the hung. best uh, lobster egg rolls. Lobster egg roll, $36. Yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. I used Back to go there with a lot of organized time. crime members. <laughs> best food. Always follow where the organized crime members go. They go for the best food, right? And then they would go there and chop up the money. So if he would come and get me with three grand, I'd meet him at eight, and he'd give me 15 back. And then at court, he wouldn't show. So the ticket and the court well, well, get ripped you, up. I have to separate myself from that. Never, ever was I involved with any corruption. Ever. Okay, no, no, I'm just saying that. No, no, I was like always the fucking cleaner than the border. Out. That was one thing. Maybe real fast with the hands, never took a penny. You know why? Because that way I grew up with my own man. I just, I just, you know, I went right through the NAP commission. So it was a time when they were all doing a lot of shit. Honestly, I never, ever took a penny, and I'm proud of it. And that, that was you, the way. Man. And that's one when I respect cops, I respect it all the way. I don't like guys that you, that was good for you. But to me, that cop's a scumbag for taking money from you or anybody because I don't believe you're supposed to be beyond 
corruption. And that's always the way I look at it. And that's why we should pay them a lot more. We should be paying them 150000 a year because they're supposed to be professionals. Fucking easy. So you shouldn't have to go through the gauntlet of making, you know what they pay them? They pay them like they have to go on. grand. Yeah, they have to go on food stamps. And when they have to go on food stamps. And they wonder why cops become corrupt. Here is a reason right there. But go ahead. So you did your thing with them. Go ahead. I did my thing with them. And then when I got locked up. I had done everything. I'd been a brick mason. Yeah, but who I'm saying? We're talking about first. You would, your New York was the money with the cops back and forth. Right. Then you're around Colorado. You get hit with the big one. I got hit with the big one, but I grew up with an attorney named Sam DeLuca, out of Jersey City. Mm-hmm. You went to see Sam. It was plain and fucking simple. How much cash you got? You sat down. Mm-hmm. First of all, you had to buy Sam a few suits. So you sat down with Sam. I was yeah. always the interpreter because those Cubans never hablo. Yeah, when no, the cops no. come, they could fucking speak English. But when cops or attorneys come, they don't hablo. No hablo, no say. So I would always be the interpreter. My mother would play, I would play, pay hooky. My mother would pay me to play hooky to go with her friends to see Sam. And Sam would tell you exactly. He handled the case in Colorado? No, he handled, I learned from him. So he learned all the tactics. So he would say to you, okay, Bo. You got busted with 200000 da 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 What we're going to do is this. For 300000 I'll get you six months probation. For 200000 you'll do a year. And for 100000 you'll do two years. Get back to me in three weeks so I can make it. <laughs> that was how quick the fucking thing was. That was how quick it was. So when I got arrested, I did a month. I lowered the bail. These fucking school teachers, these, these parents that paid for their kids to go to school, yeah. a million-dollar bail. I kidnapped the guy, put him in the trunk. My bill was 50 G's. <laughs> I waited a month. My father-in-law well, came bill. out. Uh, my father-in-law at the time. Uh-huh. My, my future father-in-law got it lowered from 50 to 3,000 cash bond. I got out. I got my life together a little bit. I got my GED. I did everything. I So when I got put away, I would go to minimum security. How much time did you get? So they offered me four to six in the plea bargain. I got... 200 fucking signal people to write letters from Colorado and New Jersey. So if you know a judge has political aspirations, you write them letters, and every letter is 250 votes. That's how a judge looks at things. Okay, when you die, God forbid, the, 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 the fucking uh, funeral director will make 250 mass cards. So for every letter you write, that's 250 votes. So I sent letters from Jersey from everybody. You know, in Jersey, you, you give somebody 20 bucks, they'll write a letter from <laughs> superintendent at schools, mayors, governors. And I got four to six, and the judge told me to file a reconsideration motion because I had never been in trouble before. I'd gotten arrested in New York, but nothing. nothing Brief like uh, possession of yeah. or, uh, robbery tools, shit like that. Nothing that stuck. So after 90 days, they reconsidered my sentence to four-year community corrections. What's that mean? And I went to a halfway house. Right away? Uh, I did about nine months. Wow, that's what you I went through the fucking blood test, the psychological Mm. test, and they determined where you're going to go. Well, you got lucky then. They put me in Camp George West. Mm -hmm. I was the only one that had a driver's license, so I was allowed to bring the idiot's lunches. (laughs) And then my girl would drop off blow or reefer on the side of the road. Now, what year are we talking about? 87, 88. Okay. So I got sentenced August 15th of 88, and I was walking the streets uh, maybe March of 89, April of 89. And then when did you end up in going to L.A.? I was still in Boulder. I got married. 
became an estimator for a roofing company, was still doing cocaine, was still doing a couple kinky things, loan shark and that type of shit in the halfway house. Mm-hmm. I'd give you 55 for 80 yeah. to pay the rent on Thursday so you could. And then uh, I got divorced. Right before I got separated, I had done everything, Bo. Boy, I had done everything I could do. I was a volunteer fireman. I mean, I really, really tried. You know, my mother really did a good job with me. Yeah, I was just lost. Bless, you know, when somebody dies at that age, yeah. you start questioning God. Yeah, so and you go, my mother, fuck this motherfucker. What does he know? And I went off the reservation. And then I, uh, when I got locked up on Thursdays or Wednesdays, it was movie night. And it was those cheap Super 8 projectors. Yeah. And they would break. Yeah. You had to glue the film back together. Yeah. The guys would say, Cuba, Splice go up yeah. there and talk to these motherfuckers. Because I was the stock clerk in the kitchen. And I would always tell people what not to eat, you know, mm. don't do it. <laughs> so they thought I was funny. So they would go, go up there and tell some stories. And I'd go up there and tell fucking stories, whatever. So this is for your first really... And I had no idea. I loved Richard Pryor yeah. and Andrew. When I, before Dice. I got locked up, Dice. I saw the Andrew special. And I was going to kill him. You know, I killed him. I know you did in the pilot. <laughs> I was ready to fucking kill him. I was because he was saying what I was thinking. Yeah. And I go, when I get out of this fucking hole, I'm going to look for this Andrew Dice fucking play and kill him. <laughs> and I got out, and I remember I had I rented the room for New Year's at the halfway house, and I actually played Dice's tape for everybody. And I just kept thinking about it. Yeah. But I was a pussy. I didn't know where to start. And I was delivering, uh, you know, I was estimating one day, and I went to get breakfast for the guys. And I opened up the paper, and there was an article on how to get into stand-up comedy. And I took the class for 33 My actual class? Three weeks, $36 at the University wow. of Colorado. And I took the class, and the last, it was three weeks, and the guy said to me, I think you're on to something, stick with it. So it took me another fucking eight months, I was such a pussy, to get on stage. And once I got on stage... It just flowed. It was the same thing that happens to heroin people. You just got addicted to the left. When I got, when I walked off stage, I knew. Yeah. And my and my ex-wife, who we've been apart for 30 years, whatever, and I fucking want to stab her in the lung, but <laughs> if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have gone on that stage. I got on the stage July, June 18th, 1991, and we were separated by October. Mm-hmm. Broke, nothing. I mean, she took the mustard. When they take your fucking mustard <laughs> and, your, and your silverware, and I just got into it, Bo. I just put everything I had into it. I remember the old comedy store in L.A. I used to go out to L.A. all the time. So you were over there. No, I started in Denver. Oh, you started in I Denver? I started in Denver and then stayed in Denver for about three years. I came here for nine months in 93. But you didn't do none of the clubs? I did the New York Comedy Club at that time. I was an open micer. Uh-huh. I would do, I would do Yale Triple N. Is that Caroline's? No, fuck no. Nothing, none of those big clubs would uh-huh. let me in. And one night I saw John Leguizamo. Johnny, I, I love John. Yeah, I Yale Triple N, working out in front of 10 people like he was in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And I got it. And I got it, and I went back to uh, Boulder, and I just got into it, and I left Boulder in 95, ended up in Seattle. And it's just funny. Your life to other people makes them laugh. 
because of what you went through in your life. All you have to do is tell the truth of your life. That's it. And it's so interesting for people to listen because they can't even fathomize what the hell you lived through and what you went through in your life. And it's, it, it becomes something where you have the attention of the audience. And, and I love when people appreciate. That's the, the heroin. When people listen to you and drink the Kool-Aid and appreciate it. Well, I got a story to tell. I learned a lot, Bo. Yeah. I learned a lot, Bo. And, you know, God took my family, but he put people in my life that were so fucking strong that I could not let down. I still talk to all my friends from North Bergen, Bo. Wow. I never forgot those. Now, how many kids you got? I got one that will not talk to me. How old? She's 30. Why the, won't she talk to you? The mother. Oh, the mother. They, they poison And them. then I have a six-year-old. That's ah, my life. It works. The, the chef works. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You sure it's yours? Oh, yeah. She's fucking beautiful. Me well, and my that, wife, that's why I say you we sure. my, me If and, she's beautiful, that's why I oh, questioned it. My wife and I were together <laughs> for 12 fucking years. Nothing happened. Yeah. And then... Then the mailman came by. 40 fucking nine. <laughs> she came in. And the mailman knocked came. her up. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. I thought the same thing. Because I was shooting duds for 12 years. Yeah. You know, I felt bad. We had got cats. <laughs> we had fucking six cats. And now... Uh, well, that's beautiful. But... I have her and, you know, it's a different fucking game. But that doesn't change the things I did. In fact, the other day she went to... You know who Burt Kreischer is? No. He's a comedian, Burt. My wife went over there with the kid because they have little girls. And Bert said to her, so what's your dad doing in New York? And she said, oh, he's doing some type of movie. And she goes, is he playing a gangster? And she's six. And she goes, you know, my dad used to be a bad guy. But once he had me, he decided to be a good yeah, but guy. I feel bad about the uh, 30-year-old. I mean, there's no way to cook that back up. I mean, Well, I hired an investigator Yeah. Uh, about six years ago. Yeah. I knew from day one, when we separated about two months later, didn't take a genius to know what her plan was. And I fought it as much as I could. I fought it for three years. I put attorney bills on every credit card I had. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one day the guy she hooked up with called me a spick. And I smacked him. I go, that's it. I smacked him. And this is how funny life works. We ended up going in front of the judge I became for sentencing had become a civil judge. Mm -hmm. So we went in front of him. And where was this? This is Boulder. Huh? And because of all the shit with the football players, there was a player named J.J. Flanagan. Mm -hmm. And one night a woman called him something very, a black kid said something to him, and he smacked the boyfriend. And they threw it out. So they made a law in the city of Boulder that you can't use a racial epitaph oh, you get in smacked. the city of Boulder. You get smacked and you get away with it. You get a free one. You so get a free here's shot. the guy in court with a black guy out to here. And Bellapani, the judge, God bless, bless his soul, said, no, we're throwing be, it out because you can't You can't, can't be saying that racial shit. At this time, I had two felonies. Yeah. And they would throw me away for fucking life. And what How happened? could that construe to a felony? Because it was an assault, but here's the deal. Yeah, open hand let, me, let me tell you how fucking God works, and I'm not I'm not here preaching God or anything. When I got cut loose from prison, I wrote that judge a letter every month. I thanked him for what he did. Wow. And I, I gave him monthly reports, Bo. How you doing? Uh, this is what you I'm doing. Right, Your Honor. You let me You're out. Right. You gave me another chance. I don't want, every fucking because month. Because you, you changed my life. I like every fucking month. I, I wrote like this that. guy. When he died, I sent flowers. The whole fucking mm, deal. Well, he didn't know then. Once the he's fucking cop, dead, what good is he? 
I had, I was a fucking, you know, I was an animal bull, so I would have a job, but there was a Sears, and they had this display in front of the door of Bruce Springsteen's The Four Thing, and I would go in there every day, Bo, because I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> yeah. and old habits die hard, I'd buy a hat, and on the way out, I'd pick up four fucking albums, and just walk <laughs> out, it was bold, it was like a fucking candy store, and I would take them up to the hill and sell them for 50 apiece, <laughs> Bruce, everybody loved Bruce Springsteen, well, one day, Bo, now, I had just gotten out for kidnapping. I just got out of the county a month in kidnapping. I knew every cop. You know how New Yorkers are. Sal, the guy would let yeah. me do, use the phone long distance, the whole thing. I get arrested for shoplifting, and I go back, and the cops are all calling me Joey. Joey, what are you doing back? But on my paperwork, I used a different name. I used a friend of mine from Jersey's <laughs> alias. They're fucking fingerprinting me. And I'm looking at the name on there, and they're talking to me, Joey, what's going on with you? You okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and I'm like, please don't look at that fucking card. So what did I do, being the nice guy that I was? I went back to court under that name. I got sentenced under that name, and they fined me, and they made me do 60 hours community service. Wow, so when I went to, when I had met a bunch of guys that had AIDS, and I didn't like what was going on, and I went to volunteer at the AIDS place, I would paint the walls and take garbage out, but there was a cop there. Mm. And we became friendly. He was there on duty every day because they were saying things to people with AIDS. It was still yeah. the, the late 80s. I became friends with the guy. The guy's name was Durfee. I'll never forget him. Six foot six, 400 pounds. We'd talk about pussy and eating. And <laughs> when I smacked John, guess who showed up? Durfee. He just had to be the patrol officer. Patrol cop. So he pulled me aside. Wow. And Durfee knew what was going on. I would bitch to him yeah. about what this woman was doing to me and ah. this guy. So Durfee just gave me a ticket. This guy's holding a stake to his eye. There's blood coming out. But I also turned around and my daughter was in the car. She was four. And she didn't understand what was going on. I go, does she need this in her life? You know what I'm saying? This is how yeah. I was raised. People getting smacked. People getting shot. Right. So... I got so much into comedy that I go, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Seattle. I'll send child support. I'll keep in touch with it. I'll come back once a year and see it. But as soon as I left, he got a job in England, and I kept getting paperwork in the mail to yeah. to sign over the kids. So I wouldn't have to pay child support, but I refused. I wanted to keep my name. Yeah. And they forged the fucking paperwork when she was like six. So now, now Bo, I in call you In her mind, Durfin. she thinks you just abandoned her. So what... I'm going through right now is right now I could press charges on her. I could do a thousand things. You know yeah. what, Bo? Let me tell you how I look at it. I made my peace with it. I gave up a life to get a life. Mm. I was a piece of shit before then. I wasn't. If I tell you right now, looking in your eye as a man, yeah. I wasn't ready to be a fucking dad. I was fighting for something mm. that I couldn't cover the spread. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what I would recommend seriously. And I'm no fucking Doctor Phil. First of all, I think he's a jerk off. But what you do is one day you find you because you can locate. I've everybody. done it all the time. No, no, I'm talking about write a letter to her. I've done it. Yeah, and how you really feel what happened? She's an and Aspen. She's a realtor. She's an Aspen. Now? Yeah, she's a realtor in and Aspen. Still has it even with your letter. I called the mother. I apologized to the mother. I said, "Listen, it was 20 years ago. I have a new family. I was, I was what an can asshole. We do? You know the drugs." Life. I can't. I can't believe. I always. Still, I always believe in forgive. Forgive and be. So do I. I mean, look. I yeah. have look, The guy that I kidnapped. Yeah. Just came to my show in Tucson. Oh, really? I hunted him down. 
Really? And I apologized to him. I made him call into the wow, podcast. that's cool. He called into the podcast. We spoke the other day. Yeah. We speak once a month now. Yeah. Well, God bless I you. fucked up, Bo. And yeah, but you know, you, people have to be forgiven. The bigger the man, the bigger the mistake. You got to look like people I say, in the compassion, eye. you know, toughness. Bo's a tough guy and all that, but I have compassion. You have kids? Yeah, I got four and I got a grandson. God bless. But I'm telling you something. Like, you know, I had two two different mothers of my children. I was only married once. I had two children out of wedlock. And they're my children. I have my names and all that. And I'm there for them. But, you know, I fucked up myself in my own life. But I'm, I'm sorry. I'm the father. That's all you could do. Yeah, I'm not a perfect person. Either are you. But that doesn't make us totally get, throw you into the garbage. I love my children, all of them. They all got my name. And I love them all the same. And that's the end of the story. So, well, I got a second chance, Bo. Yeah, I got a let's second talk about chance. real fast is important because then, then from the comedy, you went into the acting. What was the first things you did? I wasn't getting recognized as a comic. I was long in the tooth. Yeah, I was dirty, and I knew that I had to start. I had to go into the back door. Yeah. So uh, I shot. What made me move to Seattle was a guy from CBS saw me. Flew me to L.A. and I shot a show called Bronx County. It was going to be directed by the guy that played the doctor the last season of The Sopranos. He played the oh. guy with Johnny Sack. Okay. Oh, that's I, a famous guy. That's a What's famous guy. They gave the CBS gave him a million dollars, and I was going to play a Puerto Rican bartender in the Bronx who all the cops come in, wow. and I was going to be their sugar bear. Like you come in and go, what? Tell me what's going on. Yeah. Fucking Carlos moving a pound of weed down the corner. Sounds like a put, good show. How they, come that didn't take off? It was supposed to be the answer for CBS to NYPD Blue at the time. You had Howard Stringer running. So CBS you're like, then. what the fuck is going on? This is definitely going to go. It was a one-hour drama. Mm. And I get the call made. Didn't get picked up. Wow. So what am I going to do? If I go, what am I going back to Jersey? What do I do? I said, let me bang that out here. The only thing now I had. Now you're in L.A. I'm in L.A. And Mitzi Shaw made me a regular. Okay. So I kept giving it every six months. Six months, and I kept saying, if I fail, what I'll do is I'll move back to North Bergen, sell coke, but on the way to North Bergen, I'll stop in Boulder and kill the fuck <laughs> and her husband right in bed. You know, this is this is your thinking, Bo. And I just, every six months, I'd make a little advance. You know, every six months, I'd make a little advance. Even though I was fucked up on blow and everything, my work ethic, my work ethic and the hustle was tremendous. I got the longest yard because Adam told me no. And I went home, and I go, wait a second. I was doing coke, and I'm like, wait a second. So who's up for the role? Big Pussy, you know, Vinny Pastor, hey. great guy, and Tony Saragusa. I go, they're celebrities, and they're great, but they're not a comedian. Nobody's done halftime at a Buffalo Sabre game and got shit thrown at them. <laughs> I went I went to play it against sports, and I got a little midget helmet. <laughs> and a fucking, I was 418, 400. I got a size... Medium shirt on with my stomach hanging out, my tits hanging out. And I went to the University of Houston and had a guy throw passes to me. Yeah. And I put it all on tape. And I looked at the original Longest Yard and I took the the guy with the blue eyes. I was supposed to be the Italian guy. Yeah. And I just sent his lines and I sent the tape to Adam Sandler. Wow. And a week later, him and Chris Rock called me. We went to the Four Seasons. I had like $8 in my pocket. I kept saying, I hope these motherfuckers don't stick me with the tab. <laughs> Because I had a park three. I didn't even have enough for the valet parker. Wow. And uh, the acting, you know, from there, it's My Name is Earl. You know, a bunch of shit. And I'm really lucky. I'm really fortunate yeah. that I've had the opportunity. I worked with James Colburn. 
I've worked with a lot of guys, man. So yeah, the acting stuff is fun. A lot, a lot of people don't realize it's grueling too. I mean, if you're doing a real, a real show, I mean, the hours are very long. People think it's all fun games when they watch it on TV or in the movies. I mean, you get there at six o'clock in the morning, makeup and all the bullshit, and you go to eleven o'clock at night, and it's not all glamorous. But you know, that's what a great movie or TV series is about—a lot of hard work. And uh, you know it's very interesting that stuff, and and when you started the church, which happened now in two thousand twelve, uh, twelve, what was that all about? This is when podcasts first started. You were an original one. Who was that guy? Joe uh, Rogan. Rogan. Two thousand ten. I got two thousand ten. I got married and moved to the valley. I was and when I was two thousand six, I watched. Uh, Ray, the movie Ray. Yeah. And at the end, they said Ray Charles did heroin till he was 61. Mm -hmm. And that fucked with me. I go, I'm on that same route. I'm going to end up that same guy. But you were still doing shit in 10? I was still doing shit in 2006. And then one night, this is a true story, I saw a biography on John Gotti. Yeah. And it said that he became the boss of the Gambinos at 44. And I go, you know what? Eighty-five. I'm 44 years old. I got to do something with my life. And it happened because I, I would never go to a rehab. You know, I'm one of those guys that's got too much pride, no psychiatry. Yeah, I do it myself. None yeah. of that shit. And for six months, I really tried. I really tried to clean up. And a situation happened where one of my cats got sick. One of my cats got sick. And he died. But he had a brother. My wife brought the brother up, and I fucking hated that motherfucker. His name was, I called him super bad. He was a scumbag. He would take the cat that I was going to bring upstairs and make him climb trees and fight other cats and shit. And I would tell my wife, one of these days, I'm going to kill that motherfucker, super bad. <laughs> so my wife told me, super bad's in the bathroom. He might die, too. They feel sorry for And you. I had done coke that night in the house. I had, a, I had my own personal thing. Never do coke in the house. I don't want to bring shit yeah. into the house. I would do it in the garage, run upstairs, jerk off, and take a shit, and then look out the window for two hours. I was one of those assholes. But that night, I actually brought the coke up, and I did it in my kitchen, and I went to the bathroom, and both cats were there. That morning, my wife got up, and she goes, Dimmy died. And I told her, just close the fucking door. And I thought it was because of me bringing the coke upstairs. And even though I hated super bad, you blamed yourself. I got up, went into the bathroom, I got on my hands and knees, and I told God if he saves super bad, I'll never do cocaine again. Now, after three days, I'm in there putting the maluka on him. <laughs> die, you motherfucker, die. But I got a movie. People approached me for a pretty good movie. Yeah. And before I left the movie, the week earlier, they said to me, can we talk to you about something on a personal level? If you take this movie, we don't want you to give us an answer today. We want you to think about it because we've heard about your drug problem. And I was so fucking ashamed that I went home and that night, that whole, that weekend, the whole thing went down with the cat. I got on my hands and knees and said, God, if you fucking save this cat, I'll never do coke again. It's an old Cuban thing. It's called coming home. You never did it home. again? 11 years later, and guess what? I still got super bad. Wow. I still got that Cat's fucking. still, I was about 82. He's 12 now. He's 12. Wow. He was like a kitten when we brought well, him upstairs. You know what? That, that's remarkable how... Something like that changes your whole, My you whole made life. a promise, 
and you made a promise, and you were not a hypocrite. You promised. You stood by it. But, you know, it's a time when we all have to realize, you know, how long you just keep punching the clock. You gotta, you gotta be, get beyond it, otherwise they'll take your ass down. If you watch an episode, one of the last episodes I did of My Name Is Earl, I'm in jail and I'm talking about lighting a guy on fire. Yeah. And if you look at my tooth, it was already getting black from the drip, wow. like it was rotting this tooth out. And I'm like, can you imagine if I go toothless? And I'll never forget that I quit. I went to the dentist. He put some white shit in there, and I still got the fucking tooth. <laughs> you know, I I uh, I watched your uh, Netflix thing, which was. Hilarious there, and and are you going to do more Netflix stuff too? I don't know. Netflix is changing their thing. I, you know, Amazon's doing oh. specials. A lot of people are doing specials now. I got till June. I got a contract with them till June. Any for other them movie? To decide. Any other movie stuff in the works? Well, yeah, there's something you can't talk about. Yeah, I got a couple things in the works. Yeah. I got a couple. Is, good do things. you have a good part in that thing that we can't talk about? Yes, I got yeah. a tremendous part, and I'm looking Great. at another. Thing. Well, I'm looking at a book by T.J. English. Do you know T.J. Oh, yeah. English is? All about the uh, brilliant, the West Easy Road. The West Easy. Yeah. Well, I was involved with them too. The right, West I know that. Boy. I was. I grew up with John Gotti Senior. Senior. As a kid, yeah, I knew him very well. So you're well. from Queens originally, Ozone Park. No oh, shit. No, no. I, I, uh, I walked that fine line, but I never ever was involved with organized crime. What made you become a cop, Bo, coming well, from that neighborhood? Wanted to say, I'll, I'll tell you very simple. I never wanted to be a fucking cop. I worked as a, I always worked since I was eight years old because I had nothing. We had nothing in my family. If I didn't work, I used to sweep factories out in the afternoons, work as a busboy on the weekends, counterman, short order cook, griddle man, all that crap. I just worked, worked. First job I had was delivering the Long Island Press, um, there was a newspaper. I was eight years old. I used to deliver 76 papers in the morning at 5 o'clock in the morning at eight years old before I went to school because I used to make money. Everything I used to do is make money. Sweep out factory in the afternoon, make money because if I didn't make money, I had no money because we really had nothing. And then all of a sudden, I just had this work ethics. No matter what I did, then when I went into high school, I was a national champion, physical fitness champion, pull-ups, push-ups. I used to do 40 pull-ups. You got the presidential award? You got the patch? No, no, not just the presidential. We used to compete in Quantico, Virginia, the Marine Corps, and and compete against every high school, five of us. I was number one national, number one of every high school in America, 67, 68. Then I was the high bar, parallel bar. Everything was great, but I couldn't, I didn't study. I didn't do homework. So I wanted to go to college, but we couldn't afford college. Couldn't get a scholarship. So finally, I said, fuck it. I'm not going to go to college. My family can't afford it. So Ralph Scopo was a wise guy. He was like a second father to me. He goes, Bo, what are you going to do with yourself? You're 17. I said, I wanted to go to college. I want to be a gym teacher. That's all I want to be. Couldn't afford it. So Scopo says to me, you want to be a concrete laborer? You'll be a laborer. You work hard. I said, I like working hard. Go meet Sammy the Weasel on 33rd Street, Lexington Avenue. I go over there. I start work. And I was the best laborer. We had passed three by strong four four uh, bags of concrete, 400 pounds on my shoulder I used to carry. And I used to, uh, anything you want, but I worked hard, hard. Then he goes, Bob, we're going to be building, uh, there's a building going downtown called the World Trade Center. I could get you on as an iron worker on a permit. I, he says, you'll make a lot of money. 17 years old, brand new British Green Corvette. 
And I took the stupid cop test when I was 16 years old because I went to the corner and nobody was hanging out. I said, where the hell is everybody? Oh, they're taking the cop test. I said, who wants to be a frigging cop? So I went to the high school. I went to the room. They gave me a paper. They showed me a clock. What time is it? And I mean, moron question. I just I went through it in about 10 minutes, and I, I did it, and I got 98.9 on the damn test. It was a moron test. Now I'm working in the World Trade Center. I had seen four guys die in construction. They didn't have ocean and they didn't have Pacific Ocean or Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> they had no ocean. And, and guys who were 30 years old look weathered. They look like they were 50. And I'll never forget, we used to have four kangaroo cranes on the World Trade Center. And one of the things went loose and the hero, me, Jerkoff, I climb up to the top of the, of the crane to, to loosen up the, uh, the, the bolt to put the cable back on. And my hands will freeze. I'm scared shit. And then finally they called me the third time for the cops. And I says, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to be this construction worker the rest of my life. Let me try this cop shit. On the roof of the academy, four blocks away, I've seen a guy go on a fire escape. And he wasn't a fireman. I ran off the roof. I wasn't a cop yet. I chased this guy down. He burglarized the apartment. I grabbed him in a headlock, not a chokehold. He had two rings, and it was like an epiphany to help people. I hated bullies, and and then I love being a cop. I love helping people, and that's the facts about me becoming a cop. How long did you stay a cop? Uh, I got hurt bad. I broke my leg and my ankle parachuting with some Arabian, Saudi Arabian princes. It's a whole other story, but... Uh, I, I was only on for 15 years, and then they told me you'd have to come back on light duty. Now, you play a game to get this three-quarters tax-free. I had 30 line of duty injuries, fractured skulls, so, so I could have got the tax-free. I didn't wait around. I pissed. I put my papers. I said, I'm out of here, and I only got half-pay tax, and that's what I got. Everybody thinks that I got three-quarters tax-free. No, I didn't because you would have to wait around and be on light duty for a year. And I said, I'm, I'm not doing this. If I can't be a real guy out there in the street, they wouldn't let me come back because I had some, I had, a, I had 40 civilian complaints against me. None of them founded, 40 of them. You know, hey, I, I've made thousands of arrests. I was a street guy. And that's it. But people don't realize, people, when you're arresting them, they don't put their hands in back of them by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. You fight with these guys. I've been... I get them to get them. All my partners went home. I never killed anybody, but I I did what I had to do to make me go home and my partners go home safely. And again, I was if a guy I'll never forget one guy had a knife and then I ended up breaking his jaw and then and then he raped somebody in the in the tombs. I went down. I broke his nose. And they called me up. I was at the bar on the roof. He said, I broke his nose. He was a pretty good guy. He didn't give me up. And he investigated me breaking his nose with the brass knuckles. And next thing is the next day, he was a stand-up guy. I brought him a real color Parmesan hero from Feliz. <laughs> and I gave him the fucking real Parmesan. The only thing he couldn't chew, I had broken his jaw. <laughs> but I was like a kind of a, you know, I, I treated a man like a man. If you got, I got him right, I got him right. I didn't flake people. I didn't put things on him. I didn't take no money. I was trying to be the best cop I could. Depressed when I retired? Extreme. Nick Pelleggi then put me on a cover of New York Magazine, how New York lost their top detectives. He did Goodfellas and Casino, and that the rest is history. So I, I guess it was the best break of my life because I went on a plane after I locked up the Palm Sunday Massacre guy, Christopher Thomas. I was at the Helmsley Palace with the Arabs. I used to have a bodyguard company on the side. It's called uh, Daylight, uh, not Daylight, it was Moonlighting. 
and we weren't supposed to have a second job. I used to make a hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars a year going to Europe, arm wrestling. I used to be New York State arm wrestling champion. So I used to uh, arm wrestle these bodyguards from Lebanon and rip their arms out, 350-pound guys. I was pretty good at it. So now the Arabs are there, and they saw me on TV, front page of all the papers, when I locked the scumbag up. They go, Bo, let's go to La Jolla. We'll have a party. We fly over in a private jet. They get about 20 off-duty actresses for the party. And the next thing is they said, Bo, you're so brave. Did you ever jump out of a plane? So now I never jumped out of a plane. They had 100 jumps each. They were in the military. They go, are you afraid? I said, I'm not afraid of nothing. I said, the only thing I'm ever afraid of is my dad. I'm on a plane with a football helmet on a DC tree, freaking doors open. I said, what the hell am I doing here? So I go out of the plane. I'm pulling everything. Everything was good. The chute came out. There was one thing they didn't teach me about how you land properly. I broke my leg and ankle in half, and that's how I had to retire from the police department. Otherwise, I would probably have been doing time in Attica because they didn't have cell phone cameras. If they would have watched me on the cell phone, I'd be doing time in Attica probably today. But everything happens for a reason. I never killed anybody, so I could talk about it. Statue of limitations is over. And that's why I became a cop. And I really loved being a cop in those days. Today, I could not be a cop. And I think as you get older, you reflect back on a lot of things like you did about tough life and all that. And the problem today's generation, this me generation, people don't know how to work. They don't know how to work hard. They don't understand what it is. It's hard work equals success. Life is not the friggin' lottery. These kids grow up because we've given them everything, and they think they get everything, which I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it. Giving them every new car. You graduate high school, you get a new car. <laughs> yeah, my father didn't give me a beat in that day if I graduated high school. So, you know, we, you reflect as you get older, you look back, like you said, you look back at things you did wrong and things you did, and the few years that you have left, you try to make it the best life that you could have and try to do the right thing with people. And that's that's what life's about. So I'm I'm really really honored that you came here finally, Joey. And I want you to come back, and I'd love to do your show anytime. And uh, you know what 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 is the stuff that we can get in contact with you? What do you want the social medias? What people want to go into your social media? Where, where do they go? I go to Twitter, Mad Flavor, Instagram, Mad Flavor. I got a Facebook. You know, I got no dates because I'm doing this movie, so I didn't yeah. want to. I just want to focus on. New York. I mean, it's great being back here, walking around and just breathing the air where it all started. Well, we do something on our podcast each week. We have Punk of the Week. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be a thing, something that bothers you. It could be something that bothered you last week. What is your punk, something that really bothers you, or a person that really bothers you? What's your Punk of the Week? Hummus. <laughs> hummus. Who the fuck is hummus? Hummus, that shit people eat. Oh, that's the peace crush? No. It drives me fucking bananas. You hate hummus. I hate the smell of it. Even if they put uh, garlic in it or something? Yeah, that's even more. Every time you eat hummus, you give ISIS a dollar. <laughs> ISIS gets a fucking dollar. Ah. Bo, they don't make people like you anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, do people ever question you? Like, question your story? I mean, you have... Well... I, I've listened to, like, three or four podcasts. Your stories are fucking I'm going to be very honest. And Carlo knows me a long time. And, you know, he come to work for me. He's my right hand, and he's with me in a lot of businesses, too. I've been a very lucky guy. I'm a guy who's a high school general diploma guy. got out. I became an alignment worker, construction worker, cop, and all. I was very fortunate. I've made 
not less than a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars since I retired, not less than that. And I've pissed away almost all of it. My life was living like I just, I had some old ties and stuff. The guys in my old brand new Brioni ties, three hundred a pop. There's a, I never got any. hundred of, of them there. I Ascot Chang shirts, five hundred dollars. Here, John Loeb shoes. You ever see fifteen thousand dollars shoes? I got a couple pairs of these. My point is, my life. I lived that high rev, private jets, boats. I don't have nothing compared to what I've earned. But yet, I looked upon my life and I said, I did it the way I wanted to do it. Do I have regrets? Gambling. I used to gamble on football games on a weekend, a million dollars. You know what a million dollars is? If my mother ever knew that, this is what I had my own, my own little vices, uh, uh, football games. Then I'd go to casinos. I had half a million dollar credit lines, lose $800,000 on a weekend. I mean, but I had the money. I was making the money. But instead of me being smart and invested, I didn't. Do I have regrets? I guess so, but what do I do? Cry about it? Same thing with I'm me. around. Because no. there's a lot of my friend, my brother, and this was my brother, Alan. I just lost him. He was 18 months older than me. We lived together. I loved him more than my best friend. So, I mean, he could save all the money in the world. What good is it if you're not around? I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. I still care. Did I do screwed up things? I, did, I got married. I screwed over my first wife there. I was the, the bad side. But, hey, that was life. And I'm sorry for what I did if I ever hurt anybody. But one thing about it is I never would intentionally hurt anybody. And I was always there. If, a, if, a, if a, somebody was on the street and they got terrorized by someone, to this day, I step up and I stand up for people. And I always will. And when I ran for mayor, I went after this de Blasio, big bird piece of shit. And I called him on all the negative things about him. And he's a corrupt piece of shit. I tried. In one way, I'm glad I didn't win as mayor because I would not be able to be the mayor of New York City dealing with these morons in city council and with all these corrupt bastards because I would end up punching people out and I'd get locked up as mayor. I'd probably be the first mayor arrested for assaulting people. And I'm glad I'm not the mayor. I'm glad I'm Bo. I say what I want and I, I care about people. Truly, Joe, you know? I think I feel the same way as you. You and I are very, very similar. Like I said, I didn't get locked up, but yet I lived a life on that full throttle, and I have no regrets at all. And, uh, you know, we really thank you for coming. What's your punk of the month? You didn't tell me your punk. My punk punk of the week is all the people that had their hands in the tie box. I didn't get, they didn't leave nothing for me. I, what happened is I cleaned out an old locker, uh, not a locker, a a, a thing size this room. I had some old suits and ties and, and they all went in there. I didn't even, like, brand new Brioni ties, $300 a copy, hundreds of ties. They all walk, guys walking in my house. I said, boy, that's a beautiful tie. Yeah, it's one of yours, Bo. One of yours, Bo. I didn't even realize that's how sick I was as far as, 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 far as life goes in that. Now, one question. I didn't know you were best friends with Michael Down. No. No. No, I didn't I'm know just Michael teasing Dowd. You. I'm just teasing you. And Michael Down wouldn't have been my best friend. No. He should still be in jail. You know, use your badge to sell drugs. And there was a DEA kid that was killed because of who he was protecting. See, I don't play. Homie don't play that game. I'm a homie. But you were in the 7-5, too. No, I was retired in 85. No, no, I thought you said you were working out of the 7-5. Yeah, but he didn't come on until like 87. 87. 85, I retired when I broke my... 
my leg parachute with the towel heads. But that's where I retired at. I was in the homicide team. We used to have over 100 murders just in 7-5. It was really, really busy. But uh, my, my punk a week is my... Big Bird de Blasio, you pick up the paper, the Department of Investigation just found out he's taking money from developers still. He's the most corrupt piece of garbage, and his ugly wife, who is no Haley Berry, looks like a cleaner woman, his wife, that I despise. She took $800 million for mental health, and she don't know what she did with it. I challenge it. That's my punk of week. Mrs. de Blasio, Charlene, whatever you want to call her. She took $800 million. And you ask her, what would you do with it for mental health? Oh, well, you have different levels, uh, different categories. That's my punk of the week. All right. There you have it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Joey Diaz. Thank you for having this me. This is really a, a real tremendous podcast. Uh, thank you for being here. Subscribe to our show. Give us a great rating. Tell all your friends. You can follow us on social media. We're at One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter and at The Real Bo Deedle on Instagram. I'm CJ Coutinho on all platforms. Tune in next week. We got a lot of guests lined up for May. And send us any emails, questions, comments, or anything. One Tough Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.